Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, how are the next generation of doctors and medical providers learning to take care of patients? We'll explore medical simulation. Currently, the healthcare system expects providers in each discipline to just work together without any problems in communication or teamwork. Uh, but in reality, just like any high-performing team, they need to practice together. So the Sim Center is a perfect place to do that. A professor of microbiology and immunology tells us about another disease that can be transmitted by the same deer tick that carries Lyme disease. And the editor of the Healing Muse Literary Journal unveils the newest issue. The idea was, if this is a journal that tries to talk about the journey people take on their way to healing, what, what inspires people? All that, plus a selection from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center, I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll learn about a tick-borne disease that's been diagnosed in some Central New Yorkers. Then we'll hear about the newest edition of The Healing Muse Literary Journals. But first, we'll take a look at medical simulation and its role in the education of healthcare providers. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. An $11 million teaching center opened at Upstate recently that allows for the simulation of real-time responses to medical emergencies and procedures. The new SIM Center is meant to improve patient safety and patient care. And with me in the HealthLink on Air studio to explain how are Darren Carboni, the Director of Interprofessional Education and University Simulation, and Dr. Eric Rufa, the Director of Education in the Sim Center. Thank you both for being here. Thank Great. you. Thank you. Let's start with sort of a description of what medical simulation is, because it's not unique to Upstate. Medical schools all over the country have medical simulation, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, medical simulation isn't unique to Upstate, and a lot of medical schools and other healthcare professions are now using medical simulation to help with the education of their students. It's also used for practicing healthcare providers so they can improve and improve safety of, of patient care. All right. Why is being able to simulate something important? I think it's important for a number of reasons. First is patient safety. Uh, when providers and uh, learners are learning how to do procedures or how to work together in teams, we don't want them to be um, kind of doing it for the first time on patients. And so it's very important for them to practice on mannequins, which are basically uh, computers that look like humans, or on task trainers. And these are basically like body parts, simulated body parts made out of plastic or rubber that um, providers can practice procedures on, such as a spinal tap or placing a central line or like an NG tube or even an IV line. Um, one of the other important things is our healthcare training is pretty siloed right now. Uh, nurses learn from nurses, doctors learn from doctors, respiratory therapists learn from respiratory therapists. And so it's important for providers to have an opportunity to work together in teams, interdisciplinary teams. And so the Sim Center is a perfect time for that. Uh, currently, the healthcare system um, kind of expects providers in each discipline when they start working for real to just work together without any problems in communication or teamwork. Uh, but in reality, just like any high performing team, like a basketball team or a hockey team, they need to practice together and work on the teamwork and communication. And so the Sim Center is a perfect place to do that. So it's both the hands-on technical skill, mm -hmm. but also the bit, like the bigger picture of how it all goes together. It's, in, in a lot of ways, the soft skills are even more important than the hands-on uh, kind of skills of learning how to do procedures, uh, because it's something that isn't always covered in medical school or nursing school or physical therapy school. And just learning about those soft skills in the book like, uh, isn't enough. Um, you have to actually go out and practice it. Uh, we wouldn't ask people to uh, 
learn how to like ice skate in a hockey team um, just by reading a book. Um, you actually have to go out and do it. And so in healthcare simulation, to, to go out and practice working as a team to take care of a patient, and sometimes in a critical scenario uh, where they're having a heart attack or maybe um, are septic and hypotensive is, is really important for that teamwork. So Darren Carboni, tell us about the Sim Center here at Upstate. I know sure. this is radio, but give us a walk through it. <laughs> sure. Um, so the simulation center here that we have is 8,600 square feet, so tons of space here. Uh, we have an area where students, I should say learners actually, because we'll be supporting both uh, students and staff at the hospital, um, is, is kind of a, a main landing area, kind of a lobby to um, welcome visitors, welcome uh, folks who will be coming here to learn uh, and kind of preparing them for the simulation, whether that's the immersive patient care simulation or that skills and task training um, or whatever they may be using the space for that day. We have uh, two pairs of debriefing rooms uh, that are really designed for maximum flexibility. So each of these pairs of debriefing rooms uh, have a wall that, that delineates the space right down the middle. So we can use all four areas at once, or we can use two big areas or any configuration therein. But that's where a lot of the learning really happens. And, and as uh, Dr. Rufo was mentioning, um, that's where you really anchor that learning. After you've had an experience, you come back and you talk about it and process it a little bit. We have uh, six patient care rooms um, that are... Uh, so these look like hospital rooms. They look like hospital rooms, and we can they're, they're really designed for maximum flexibility. So we can set them up to look like an emergency room. We can set this to look like a, a labor and delivery room. We can make it set look like a, a patient care, like a regular hospital room, or maybe we take everything out and we set this up as a waiting room. And now the simulation is that you're going to have a difficult conversation with um, a family member or the patient, um, and you're going to deliver some bad news, and that's the simulation. All things that you want to have as near authentic an experience before you actually have to do it, so you can really learn from that. This is where we want people to make the mistakes uh, and learn from them. Uh, we also have a full operating room. Um, we have four control rooms to monitor and manage the uh, the simulation in each of the different rooms. Uh, we have a very large skills and task training area that can be separated into two groups um, as well there too, but that's where they really do a lot of the hands-on, practice lumbar punctures, different procedures that you really want to practice on something before you're, you're practicing on a real human. <laughs> now, during the open house recently, I wandered back there and these mannequins look sort of alive. with the <laughs> Like the eyes were blinking. Sure. Is that on purpose? That is. So pupils dilate, they blink, uh, you can take a pulse on them, skin is very lifelike, they respond to simulated medication the way that a human would in terms of physiological changes to their, their vital signs. Um, yes, we want to get as close to authentic as possible. One of the opportunities that we have here is we're actually bringing our standardized patient program into um, kind of extending that human simulation that we've been doing here for years in, uh, in Steve Harris's department in clinical skills, um, where we um, use real humans who are portrayed, who are trained to portray a certain case and uh, give real rich feedback to the learners as well, too. So we may have a simulation that is using a mechanical simulation, a mannequin, uh, for the first part of it. The second part is now we've moved from the emergency room to a patient care room, and you're speaking to a standardized patient. Uh, just an incredible learning opportunity for, for all the folks here. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith. I'm talking with Darren Carboni and Dr. Eric Rufa, both from Upstate's new simulation center. Is there evidence that medical simulation leads to better patient care? Has this been studied and looked at? It has been studied, and it's a relatively new field. Um, and so the data is, is new. And so we do have some uh, reasonably good studies to show that medical simulation improves patient outcomes. Um, in particular with um, task training and uh, procedures, um, there is really good evidence that uh, teams practicing putting in central lines with simulation, at least with simulation as part of their training, reduces uh, bloodstream infections from these central lines. And central lines are basically large IV lines uh, that go into the large vessels that are often in people's necks and stuff, and it's a procedure to put them in. 
So there's some evidence on that. There's also some evidence that, um, especially in obstetrics and gynecology, that training together and team training uh, improves outcomes of mothers and children um, in the birthing process, especially when there's complications. And this concept of simulation is not unique to medicine, right? It's been used in the military, and right? So there's some history yeah, um, simulation has a long history, and probably chess is probably the earliest simulation, um, uh, war simulation. And then in the military, simulation has been used for many years. And in fact, a lot of the medical simulation comes from the military. It kind of started there. And then a few pioneers throughout, throughout the country started creating these mannequins. Initially, they were more low-tech low than they are today. And now the mannequins, as Darren describes, are quite high-tech and can uh, interact just like uh, the provider can interact with the mannequin just like they would a regular patient. They, they'll speak back and they can ha- provide physical exam findings for the provider to detect. And also you can do procedures right on the mannequins. Just for context too, the mannequins themselves are about $75,000 a piece. So very complicated, expensive wow. equipment here. And to, meant to be used over and over and yes. for many years, right? Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, t- walk me through, like, what's, what are some of the simulations um, that you'll be doing? And, and do you look to do things that are sort of routine, that, are, that will happen, that, that a student would encounter routinely? Or do you look for the trickier kind of the zebras instead of the horses? We really do both. And so um, simulation can be used for those routine, um, everyday uh, situations, um, whether it's communicating with a patient uh, on a pre-op about the risks and benefit um, and getting a consent, um, and that happens every day, and to, so the students can practice that. Whether it's putting in a routine central line or an IV line, we can do things like that. Uh, in the immersive simulations, we can um, simulate like an asthma attack, which happens every day, um, or we can simulate a, a unique and rare event such as anaphylaxis, or an uncommon event like anaphylaxis, uh, a serious allergic reaction to a medication or maybe a, um, a food uh, that happens once in a while. And so now, we, we use it for all those things. How does um, the professor who's uh, working with the students, how do they go about grading them on their performance? Well, the majority of simulations um, aren't graded. It's for um, learning and helping the student progress and helping the learner or healthcare provider progress and get better. So they don't have the additional stress of, can I get earn an A for this? They can relax and focus on doing what they're doing and doing the best they can. And so um, that's very important uh, because medical simulation, as you can imagine, um, puts a lot of stress on people, even without the grade. We're throwing them into situations where they don't know what's going to happen. They don't know ahead of time if it's going to be an allergic reaction or a person with respiratory failure. And so that in and of itself is nerve-wracking. Um, to try to decrease some of those nerves, um, we do a pre-briefing where we prepare the learner and we tell them what to expect, what their role is going to be in the simulation. We go through some basic concepts of simulation. We prepare them for the mannequin because the mannequins, although they are very realistic, they don't look entirely like real humans. Um, And that's very important, that pre-briefing, in order to prepare the learner. If we're going to actually have the students graded, um, we want to make sure they know that ahead of time. And we want to make sure we still maintain a safe environment for learning, whether we're grading the students or whether we're just having them in there so they can learn and progress to take care of patients better. And just to follow up on that too, we want to take a very methodical approach to all of this. This is not just turn on the lights, come on down here, do a simulation, we'll see you later. This is um, a very, um, very thought out process to make sure that we're getting to uh, good learning outcomes through the pre-briefing, as Dr. Rufa was mentioning, um, the simulation, the structure of the simulation, how do you develop a scenario, how do you develop a scenario when you have medical students and nursing students and respiratory therapists in there to make sure you're meeting everybody's learning objectives, um, coming together to develop that, uh, you know, against best practices, best debriefing practices, uh, and really making sure that we, it's not the wild west down there, that it's, it's very, um, that the processes and the procedures are repeatable, that you get to good outcomes, that you can measure those outcomes and you can get to good assessment too. So there's a lot of best practice out there too. Fortunately, we have Dr. Rufa on our team here too, who's going to help us to uh, ensure that that's taking place. 
And because they're using real medical equipment and devices mm -hmm. that they'll be using on real patients one day, right? So it's very realistic in that sense. One of the things when I was um, preparing for this, um, I saw one of the benefits being the ability to allow errors to continue to their natural conclusion. Because in real life, if a student was working on something and going down the wrong path that would harm the patient, they would be stopped, and right, by mm -hmm. their superior. Yes. But in these scenarios, they're allowed to, to experience that and see what would happen, right? That's true. And often uh, times that's what we do. We allow that um, decision, um, whether it be an error or just a decision that would be different than what, say, the expert would do to play out. Um, and then that gives us something really rich to talk about in the debriefing, to talk about with the team, if it's an immersive sim, why they chose to go down that route and what decisions they make and really analyze what were their frames, what were the knowledge, what was the experience that they were experiencing that they put together to go down that route. And that's kind of how you diagnose the learner in that situation. That's part of the debriefing. You really get into the minds of the team and the different individuals and uh, kind of pick apart what went into their decisions. And then we can add more information to those frames. So next time they'll have more information or if one of those assumptions they were making or they a bit of knowledge that was a little bit off, we can talk about that and teach to that um, particular deficiency. So that's how they learn decision-making. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and, and again, just to kind of piggyback off that too is, you know, part of a good methodology going about this is having the debriefing right after the simulation too. So learners aren't left to wander around for the next week or so right. to think about that and process maybe a mistake they made that they're, you know, beating themselves up about or something that they thought went really well when really that was a huge learning opportunity that they should be taking it away. So having it right after allowing them to process the experience as part of that, that, group, um, a facilitated group there and doing that in a safe environment. Um, that's what we want to happen because that's where a lot of that learning really gets anchored right there. Well, this sounds fascinating, very interesting, and I appreciate you both coming in. My uh, guests have been ups from Upstate's new simulation center, Darren Carboni, the director of interprofessional education and university simulation, and Dr. Eric Rufa, the director of education for the Sim Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, a new tick-borne disease in central New York. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. At least two patients in central New York have been exposed to a tick-borne disease known as BMD that is potentially worse than Lyme disease and harder to diagnose and carried by the same species of deer tick. Here with me in the HealthLink on Air studio to discuss this is Dr. Saravanan Thangamani, a professor of microbiology and immunology at Upstate who's an expert in ticks and tick-borne diseases. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Thangamani. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Now, I said BMD, that's the abbreviation, but what, what is that? So that's called Borrelia miyamotoi disease. Um, it is a disease caused by relapsing fever bacterium called Borrelia miyamotoi. It was first identified in 1995 from ticks in Japan. First human case was uh, reported from Russia in 2001, and first human case in the United States was reported in 2013 from a patient uh, in New Jersey. So it's newer than Yes, some. it is newer. It is, uh, uh, the number of cases are slowly increasing. And it's bacterial. Yeah, it is a bacteria that is uh, very similar to relapsing fever Borrelia. And I must mention here that it is uh, distantly related to the Lyme disease bacterium. Although they share the same, the first name Borrelia, it doesn't mean that they are very close to Lyme disease Borrelia. They are far apart from each other. But they uh, share the same, the same tick that tick. transmits, okay. exactly. The same tick. Well, I definitely want to get into that. Um, but I understand from news reports that at least a couple of people have been exposed to BMD here in central New York. So is this now a concern for anyone who's exposed to deer ticks? 
Not necessarily. It's like any other tick-borne illnesses. When you're exposed to it, there is a certain chance of getting infected by a particular uh, tick-borne agent. Like in the case of Lyme disease, we are talking anywhere from two, 20 to 40 percent of the ticks, depending on the region we are living in. Uh, in the case of Berlin Mumotoi, uh, in nature, um, about 0.5 percent to 4 percent of the ticks are infected with Berlin Mumotoi. So the chance is rather low, but definitely uh, not as high as a Lyme disease exposure. But it's out there. It is out there, yes. Now, your laboratory has been um, receiving ticks that people submitted from all over central New York. Did you? Did any of those ticks carry BMD? Um, yes, we have found seven ticks so far from our deer tick collection, which roughly translates to 1% of the deer ticks that we have collected. All right. And I guess the state health department also sort of does surveillance for, of ticks too, right? Are they seeing sort of similar levels? Yes, they in the, in the percentage-wise, yes, it stands at around 1% of the ticks that they tested. The deer tick that was tested for the year 2018 carry Borrelia miyamotoi bacterium. Do we know how many cases of BMD uh, patients have statewide? So Borrelia miyamotoi is not a reportable disease, which means that we will not have a real-time data similar to a Lyme disease exposure. So, But, however, in 2017, New York State Department of Health published a report wherein they found that 1% um, of the human cases that, re that they retrospectively tested uh, from 2012 to 2014 carry Borrelia miyamotoi. So it was a retrospective study. Okay. So it roughly translates to 1% of the human cases. Okay. So 1% of the... So if you um, are bit by an infected tick, and it's and we'll say again that it's a small percentage of ticks that carry this, but if you're unlucky enough to be bitten by one that does carry this, how certain is it that you will get the disease? That's a very good question that we still have to do a lot of research on it to understand the ecology of transmission of this Borrelia miyamotoi from the ticks to the humans. It is a newly emerging uh, agent, so we still don't know a lot of the information as we know for Lyme disease. So that is one of the interesting aspects. A lot of researchers are interested to try to understand the processes. However, there's one difference I must mention here, that the Lyme disease bacterium takes about 24 to 48 hours after a tick bite to be transmitted. However, these relapsing fever Borrelia doesn't need to wait for that long. So within, let's say, 12 to 24 hours of attachment, you will see this bacterium in your body. So it's a, so short, that's a big shorter period of time. Exactly, shorter period of attachment. And the, the reason is that uh, these are you can find this uh, bacterium in the salivary gland of the tick, even in a naive condition. But in oh. Lyme disease bacterium, you wouldn't see them in the salivary glands. Does it uh, stand a reason that someone with a depleted immune system would be more at, at risk if they got a tick bite? That's very not? well said, exactly. So, you know, the clinical manifestation of this Borrelia miyamotoi disease is it's like any flu-like illnesses, you know, fever, nausea, vomiting, arthralgia. However, in an immunocompromised individual, it can result in meningitis or meningoencephalitis. In fact, the first human case that was identified in the United States is actually from an immunocompromised patient. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Saravanan Thangamani, a professor of microbiology and immunology at Upstate, who's an expert in ticks and tick-borne diseases. Now, many Central New Yorkers are familiar with Lyme disease. We've heard about it for, for years, and we all are, are trained to look for ticks because we don't want to you know, contract Lyme disease. Can you talk about the what's similar with BMD and, and what's different with BMD versus Lyme disease? In terms of symptoms, they're pretty similar, right? In terms of the febrile illness, the acute infection symptoms in the first couple week or two, they're more more or less you will have the similar clinical outcome. However, you wouldn't see that bullseye rash as you would see in a, in a Lyme disease case. Most of the Lyme disease cases, you would see a bullseye rash, but here... Uh, they can be asymptomatic or you will have flu-like illnesses. That kind of mirrors to the Lyme disease. The other similarity I can tell is that it's transmitted with the same tick and uh, you can treat the Borrelia miyamotoi with the same antibiotics that are used to treat Lyme disease, like doxycycline and other the similar, ticks, uh, similar antibiotic regime could be used to treat and it's been reported that it, it very well controls the infection. 
Now, can you diagnose BMD? Is there a test in to the tell? early infection? We can use polymer PCR to detect the DNA of the bacterium. In the later stage, we can use the antibodies. That people respond in response to infection. People develop in response to an infection can be um, serologically tested. But these are the two methods right now we have. However, the Lyme disease test could cross-react for Borrelia miyamotoi infection as well because we still don't have the very clear, accurate test for Borrelia miyamotoi. So, so for, is, from the patient's point of view, this would be like a blood test. Exactly. That would tell. Exactly. Um, now, could a tick carry both, BMD and Lyme? That's a very interesting question. So uh, we have, out of the ticks that we tested, four of the ticks um, that carry both, four of the ticks carry both the Borrelia burgdorferi, the Lyme disease agent, and Borrelia miyamotoi. And I checked the state, um, uh, New York State Public Health uh, Surveillance record for the 2018. It roughly translates to like 42 texts um, have been reported to be positive for both Borrelia burgdorferi and Borrelia miyamotoi. So it is, we can, it's pretty common to say that you can see both these uh, agents in the same tick. Wow. Now the deer ticks contract, help me remember, how, how do they get Lyme disease? They, they bite a so, mouse, right? Yes, they have to feed on a mouse that is uh, infected with uh, the Lyme disease agent. And then when they feed, the ticks get infected. And the Borrelia miyamotoi do the same processes. Basically, when they feed on an infected uh, mice or any small mammal, they acquire the Borrelia miyamotoi. However, there is one difference is that Lyme disease bacterium doesn't, doesn't move from uh, fed female to the larvae. But Borrelia miyamotoi can actually be transmitted via a mom to the offsprings. Like the fed females, when they lay eggs and the legs hatch to larvae, these larvae could potentially have Borrelia miyamotoi. So, so that's a big difference. Baby ticks can be born with this. Yes, baby ticks can be born with it. That's a well said. Yes. Wow. So how many ticks does a, anywhere a from three thousand to five thousand per female? So potentially, this could like explode. So there are two schools of thought in this. There is only like a couple of publications on this transovarial transmission. That's how we call it, from mom to the babies. Uh, one study shows that, yes, it is possible. However, it is very uh, less frequent. The other study kind of talks about the same thing, but they don't agree to it. So I think we still need to do a lot of uh, research on it to completely understand the possibility of mom to baby transmission. Do the uh, ticks transmit to other mammals? Do they transmit this BMD disease to other mammals or just humans? It is believed, well, it will be transmitting to any mammals that they feed on. Basically, it just transmits the whatever agent it has in its salivary gland and the saliva, and then it transmits. But we still don't know what is the primary reservoir, which wild animal is actually the reservoir for this Borrelia miyamotoi. Unlike for the lion, we clearly know that Perimiscus leucopus, the white-footed mice, squirrels, and the deers are the primary carriers of the lion, but we don't know that for Borrelia miyamotoi. So that's the reason why I was insisting earlier that we still don't know a lot of information about the ecology of this disease. So there's a lot to still be learned. Exactly. Well, in central New York, as we're headed into the cooler months, um, do we need to be concerned with prevention of ticks yes, if, if we're would, out? Yes, I would say that I think we should still uh, follow the precautions of protecting ourselves from tick bites and also checking us every time we come back from the woods or the outdoor activity, check us on us. The uh, so we had, uh, last week we had our tick collection at the Green Lake State Park and we saw a good number of ticks as well. In fact, all the ticks that we got were adults. Oh, okay. So in, Ju in the month of July, we got a lot of nymphal ticks, but now we are seeing a lot of adult ticks on the emergence. So basically, I would advise anyone going outdoors, be prepared, be protect yourself, check yourself after your activity. So it's the adult ticks that are, are more active and looking to, to feed? At this time of the year, yes. So once we have a freeze, um, does that take care, does that kill all the ticks and we start over next spring? It doesn't normally die. They try to find cozy places to hide or hibernate during the winter months and then in summer they will start to come out. So basically they don't necessarily die but the activity will go down which means that we will not uh, be exposed to the ticks. But if they're hibernating under leaves and people do um, hiking in the winter 
and they they stir up the ticks are this are the ticks still exposure active? to ticks during winter is rather rare unless and until you are a you know outdoorsman hunting those kind of activities but other than that i think the exposure is highly limited we've talked about these two lime and borella miyamotoi miyamotoi yes um, are there other tick-borne diseases that you see in central New York or that central New Yorkers should be aware of? So the deer tick is a, it's a unique tick vector, tick in such a way that it transmits pretty much nine different tick-borne agents like Ehrlichiosis uh, and Anaplasmosis and uh, Babesiosis as well. And also, you know, the virus that uh, my lab is more interested in is the Powassan virus or the deer tick virus. So we, uh, we are checking the ticks for all the tick-borne agents that are transmitted in the north, northeast United States. Um, I would say that we haven't found any Powassan virus. That's a good news for the public to know. We haven't found any Powassan virus from all of our uh, citizen science testing and also from the ticks that we tested from the Green Lakes. None of them are positive for the viruses. And Powassan, what, remind me where that comes from. What, what does that one, what does that do? So Powassan is an encephalitic uh, disease causing virus. Uh, uh, it was originally identified from Ontario, Canada, a village named Powassan. That's how it's called, Powassan virus. So it is transmitted by the same tick that transmits Borrelia, Lyme disease agent Borrelia. And uh, it can. the only big uh, scary thing is that it is the Powassan virus is transmitted from the tick to the human immediately upon attachment because this virus is ready in the salivary gland as soon as the tick latches on someone's body it spits the virus right at the feeding site and that's the most dangerous part of this virus plus uh, if in in 15 percent of the cases it can be fatal and 50 percent of the survivors could have long-term neurological sequelae and that's the you know disturbing part of it so it's a it's a relatively obscure pathogen but it's fatal and encephalitis is the swelling of the, the brain. brain and the spinal cord. And, exactly. Okay. Well, it's good that we haven't found any of that here then. Yeah, that's a good news. Uh, okay, so you mentioned nine, there's nine different bacteria and some viruses? Bacteria, that, protozoa, that and viruses, yes. And that's just in the deer tick? That's just in the deer tick. And uh, we are slowly starting to see Amblyomma americana ticks, which we commonly call as the lone star ticks. That do carry that do transmit uh, rickettsiosis, ehrlichiosis, and also uh, um, bourbon virus and heartland virus. So we are starting to see more of these um, ticks, uh, primarily from the southern part of the New York, like downstate area. We are starting to see a lot. You called it the lone star tick. Does that mean it's bigger? It's a bigger tick. Plus, it has a small dot at the back that resembles the star of the state of Texas. Oh, it does. So that's why it's called lone star tick. Can they survive in this climate if they're from yes, the south? Yes, they oh, are. They, they, they could do. survive. So ticks are very smart in surviving during the winter time. Now I know there's a Lyme um, disease virus for dogs. Um, Lyme disease there, vaccine or vaccine. I mean, yes. I'm sorry. Um, do they? Is there any vaccine available for BMD? Or uh, is there work on not that? Not at. No, I not don't think currently. anyone has tried that. So this is a newly emerging field. A lot of researchers researchers are more interested to understand the disease mechanism, how to prevent it, how to diagnose it. So I think it is the next uh, uh, sort of disease that all the tick-borne researchers are looking forward to work with. Well, thank you to tick-borne disease expert, Dr. Saravanan Thangamani, a professor of microbiology and immunology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, The Healing Muse presents a new issue. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. You would probably expect to find medical journals at a medical school, but what about a journal for literature and visual arts? Upstate Medical University, since the year 2000, publishes the Healing Muse Literary and Visual Arts Journal each year. 
HealthLink on Air is proud to share an excerpt from The Healing Muse each week. Here with me in the studio today to tell us about the new edition of The Healing Muse is the editor, Dr. Deirdre Nealon, who's also an associate professor of bioethics and humanities at Upstate. Thanks for being here, Deirdre. Thanks for having me, Amber. Let's begin with a little history. Um, tell us how The Healing Muse got its start, because this is year 19, right? Yes, I know. I can't believe we're at 19 already. Um, the Muse began as an idea by a former uh, colleague, uh, Professor Bonnie St. Andrews. Uh, it was her idea to have a journal that would publish the writings of healthcare professionals. She felt as a writing teacher in the College of health professions, the College of Nursing, and the College of Medicine. She did all three. She felt that there were so many stories that those professionals kept inside that she thought it would be good for them to reflect on them by writing. And so she thought, I'll start an in-house journal. So the first year, our volume one, uh, is just people from uh, Upstate Medical. Uh, The second year, she expanded it a little bit more. And the third year, a little bit more, and then she tragically uh, got a brain tumor and passed away. So by the fourth issue, I became uh, the editor, and the internet was in full swing, and all of a sudden it was very easy to put this work out across the country, across the globe, and receive work from across the country and across the globe. So by 19, um, our journal has really, I think, fulfilled Bonnie's vision, which was to become a place for people to reflect on what has happened to them as they get well or as they get sick or as they watch people they love suffer, uh, and to further the dialogue between practitioners and patients and the people who care for them. Was it, uh, was it tricky to convince administrators that you know, a medical school needed to have this journal, or were they... No, you know, I have to say, uh, first of all, Bonnie was extremely persuasive. Anybody who knows her, and there are still people around here who remember her very fondly, uh, she just had a way of telling you stuff that you thought, yeah, that's a great idea. (laughs) Um, And I have to say that through all the um, changes that we've had at Upstate, we have had very supportive administration. And I'd, I'd mention in particular Dr. Gregory Eastwood, who I remember when I went to his inaugural address when he became Uh, the president of Upstate. He quoted uh, Emily Dickinson and Spinoza, and I remember Bonnie and I looking at each other and thinking, oh, wow, we have a person here who loves literature as well as medicine. So, no, it's been a very easy way to to have the journal be housed in a medical facility. And uh, the idea that a medical school would have this, uh, we're not alone. There's other medical schools that have support. No, we're not alone, but I I like to think that we are one of the best ones but yes, there, there are many medical schools now that are working their way through, will they just be in-house journals? I notice, I mean, I try to keep up with who's doing what, and it's very interesting to read the ones who are close to outside writers and are just trying to let their physicians and nurses and medical students write versus the ones that do as we do, which is to say, um, it's a big world out there. Let's see what other writers are thinking. Okay. Well, the publication um, includes poems, narratives, essays, memoir, um, and a, a variety of types of writing. So do you, you look for themes of medicine and healing, but how do you select which ones to include? Because I, I imagine you get a lot of submissions. We get very many submissions. Um, I should have brought those numbers for you, but the, every year it increases the numbers that we're getting. I would say that uh, the quality of the writing is what pushes a piece to the forefront of our consciousness. It's very hard to say to people, okay, let's have a contest or let's have a magazine and we are about health. Um, You get some work then that is not very good because you can almost tell the writer is struggling to make this piece fit their preconceived notion of what health is or what you know, the body is or something like that. So we tried in our um, submission guidelines to say that we are about health, we are about illness, we are about wellness, we are about the body, we are about disability issues. We're really about almost everything that has to do with being human. And what attracts us is a story or a poem or a memoir that makes us look at something we thought we understood 
and you just have that aha moment where, oh, this is this is somewhat different, or yes, that's exactly how I felt, um, and that's who gets into the journal. As the editor, do you try to um, make sure that you have a mix of things that are, I don't know, leave you feeling uplifted or maybe you're sad? I mean, uh, some, yeah. of, some of the work is, I mean, can bring it's a tear. It's very sad. I know. it. Um, no, I don't look for a mix. I'm always pleased when we get something that makes us smile or laugh because it's true that when you're talking about illness, those moments of hilarity are few and far between. Um, but I don't ever try to say, oh, we have too many pieces about cancer this this year. Uh, if you write well about cancer, um, the chances are you could get in. And on the other hand, if you wrote something very funny, um, for example, this year we heard from an eighth grade boy in Korea, and he sent us his first piece, and it's about bubble wrap. And it's only six lines long, and it did just tickle us. Uh, he just wrote about why he likes bubble wrap, and it's very sweet. And at the same time, it's also got that double edge that poetry can have, where you think you're reading about one thing, and then you get to the last line, and you think, oh, there is a little bit of wow. a something there. So that was one that, you know, would I ever think that I'm going to put out a call for Anybody got a poem on bubble wrap for us? No, but there it was. There it was. There it was. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Deirdre Nealon. She's an associate professor of bioethics and humanities and the editor of Upstate's literary and visual arts magazine, The Healing Muse. So let's talk about the visual arts in here. Um, there's drawings, paintings, photographs. How do you go about choosing what will appear on the cover? Um, that's a vote that we all take. Um, I want to give a lot of credit in our art selections to Nancy Sharir, who works here at Upstate. Uh, she is a graphic artist designer. Um, she's also a writer in her own right, but um, she is the one who uh, picks uh, some of the art. I mean, most of the art, I would say, but we do have uh, five of us that sit down and look at everything that comes in, and we talk about it, the cover is a special, obviously, is a special decision. The cover is supposed to be a muse. Um, and we've had very wonderful discussions, uh, vigorous discussions about what constitutes a muse. Uh, the traditional muse is a female, and she is someone that appeals to the male gaze. And we did never, we never wanted that to be what our muse was. But the idea was, if this is a journal that tries to talk about the journey people take on their way to healing, what, what inspires people? And so we've looked for covers that tell a story. And um, this particular cover, we've gone back to a more traditional form of the muse. Uh, our associate editor, Dr. Kathy Faber-Langendoon, was on vacation in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and visited a museum, as is her want, because she's always looking for muse covers. And there she found William Adolph Bougereau's magnificent painting, The Little Shepherdess. And you and I are looking at the cover, Amber, and we can see just how, I don't know, like vulnerable, innocent, and yet strong this young woman is posed in a field. Uh, Bougereau was so well known for his uh, hands and feet, what he could do with them. Her gaze is looking straight out at us, and I just feel she is a great muse. And so Kathy brought the reproduction, the picture back for us, and we looked at it, and, and we all voted and said, yes, let's make, this, let's make this little person our muse this time. Well, what else can you tell us about this volume? Is there, are there any work, which work touched you personally the most? Oh, um, you know, so many of them touched me personally, but I, I can tell you one story. Uh, we received a message uh, from someone who works here at the university, um, Sue Keeter, and she told us of a person that she knew who uh, had sickle cell anemia, which is a disease that I have, um, in my work at, with bioethics, have been very interested in how people are treated who have that disease. Uh, and she told me about a young man who had the disease and had triumphed over so many of the disease's problems. 
And he had written a beautiful poem, and she wondered if we would be interested in it. And I said, oh, of course, you know, send it over to us. And so she did, and we were very moved by that poem. And we asked Michael if we could publish it, and he passed away. And so he will not be able to see his poem in the, the book, but we are hoping that at our launch, his widow, uh, Kim, is going to come and read it. And she let us know how happy uh, he would be that, you know, he, he's thought of himself as a poet. And despite how that disease can really work at a person, tire them out, and make it almost impossible at times for them to, to feel that they can have a quote-unquote normal life. He did it. He did everything. He has a lovely daughter, a lovely wife, great family, and he wrote. Um, so that, that poem means something to me on so many different levels, and I'm really eager to hear his wife read how she interprets it. Have you noticed any themes that you're seeing more of this year or in recent years um, in terms of the submissions? I think that people are becoming more comfortable with being more honest about their own health problems, particularly as regards uh, things like eating disorders or addiction problems or violence in the home. I think that uh, writing has been very therapeutic for some people and getting a message out to other people that you're not alone. That's, that's something that in the last few years I've seen much more um, beautifully written works about that. So what percentage come from um, patients versus uh, caregivers, doctors and nurses and oh, other? That's, that's interesting. Um, I haven't really worked out those percentages, but I would think that we are about one-third medical professionals and two-thirds people outside uh, the system. Well, I want to let listeners know that you'll, at the end of this HealthLink on Air program, we'll have you read a selection from this volume. Um, but I also want to let people know you're accepting submissions for volume 20. Yes. Um, yes. Thank you for, for saying that. Yes. You can just go to thehealingmuse.org and you will find there all the uh, rules of regulations. It's very simple to send us your work. Uh, if you are writing uh, prose pieces, we have a 2,500 word limit. If you are writing poems, uh, I think we have a 10 page limit of poetry. Um, but we use uh, a web design called submittable.com, and that's how you just uh, download it on your computer and send us your work. It takes us about six weeks to respond. We try to be timely, um, and we will let you know yes or no. And next year, Volume 20 will be published in October of 2020. So yes, we are open now until April 15th. April 15th deadline, and people uh, need to submit new works that have not oh, been yes, published. Oh, yes, thank you for that yeah. reminder, yes. We don't want anything that you have published before, and that includes if you've published online. Sometimes we get questions from people, and no, people do read journals online now, so we would like your work to be first published in our journal. You get the rights after that. We just ask that if you republish it, many of our writers, for example, have books in the works and they, they use the selections that they've had in the muse in their own books. And the only thing we ask is in the fronts piece, could you just say you acknowledge that the Healing Muse was one of the place where your work appeared? Well, thank you to Dr. Deirdre Nealon, editor of the Healing Muse Literary and Visual Arts Magazine. Stay tuned to hear an excerpt from this new volume 19. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. We're always so interested when we find out a little personal information about our healthcare professionals. Cassia Clark is a fourth-year medical student hoping to pursue pediatrics or family medicine. She's married to a fellow medical student and enjoys volunteering at a local clinic. She sent us a beautiful poem about her husband and about their vocation. It's called, To My Husband and Fellow Medical Student. I'm practicing for our upcoming medical exams. 
Your hands snap the ends of the green beans, sprinkle panch foran onto the potatoes, stir tamarind through the onions. Just before you practice the exams, hands on my hands, feeling temperature, spreading the palm lines apart to check the color, the pulse pressing under your fingers, the head of the stethoscope on my chest, heart sound one, heart sound two, careful on my skin, you are learning to touch. I see you in the kitchen, splitting the brown eye from the skin of the tomato, the late sprouts of potatoes stacking up, even your fingers now, gentle as they palpate on my abdomen, harder now, no masses, no tenderness. I see the wedding ring. You wring your hands and forget parts of the exam. You examine under my chin, before and behind my ears, at the base of my skull. I shrug my shoulders and you check above the bones. You are learning, and I am learning, to be patient. Say this. Say your hands will heal, and before dinner, the prayer is always, bless the hands that prepared this. And I bless your cooking hands and your healing hands, the way you rub your palms together before touching, as if creating fire with sticks. Two palms slightly warmer, more tender with confidence, you ask if we may begin. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, 20 years of providing thoracic oncology care. If you missed any of today's show, listen on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.